Blog Talk Radio. listening and being part of the Radio Voice of Eastern Airlines. My name is Neil Holland, former retired captain with Eastern Airlines and producer, host of the EAL radio show. Thanks for joining us for episode 67 today. We enjoy talking about Eastern and have done so for over eight years now, along with our popular EAL radio show website which is maintained by our webmaster, Dorothy Gagnon. Today's episode, we continue to talk about the early day history of our beloved Eastern Airlines. Last week's episode featured Pitcairn Aviation. But before we go to our second installment in 2019 now, from the Eastern Files, here is an Eastern Airlines commercial. Today we take uh, from the Eastern Files a reading from R.E.G. Davies' book, Eastern Airlines and Its Aircraft. Wonderful book and beautifully uh, photographed pictures of Eastern and all of its airplanes. So let's begin reading here. Eastern Airlines can trace its ancestry back to 1926 in the state of Florida. Uh, and it can make some claim to being among the earliest of United States Airlines, though this is dependent upon certain qualifications. 
There were other airlines before the Airmail Act of 1925 and the Air Commerce Act of 1926 gave permanency to the air transport business. But these were of short duration, mainly because of the technical shortcomings of the equipment and the economic impossibility of flying airplanes for hire and reward. The obvious situation for those experimental gambles was on short overwater routes, preferably in areas of good weather, because the aircraft did not have much range and the flimsy machines were vulnerable. Florida was thus a favorite locale for these flights, so that Eastern's first ancestor's choice of that state was operationally sensible. The first airline in the world started in Florida. The St. Petersburg-Tampa Airport line was founded by Percy Fanslers on the 4th of December, 1913, and started service across Tampa Bay on the 1st of January, 1914. It lasted only three months, but it carried 1,204 passengers. Six years later, on October 15, 1920, Florida West Indies Airways was issued the first airmail contract to fly mail from Key West to Havana, but it never flew. And both airline and contract were taken over by Inglis Uppercuts, Aeromarine, Curtis F5L flying boats. It started regular service from Key West to, Savannah, uh, to Havana and from Miami to Nassau on the 1st of November, 1921. And until September 1923, during Prohibition, it carried several thousand passengers to attractive watering places in Cuba and the Bahamas. Other small companies joined in the Prohibition evasion the America Transoceanic Company and Aero Limited also flew to the Bahamas alongside Aero Marine, also using Curtis flying boats. When, therefore, Eddie Rickenbacker came south in 1926 to start Florida Airways, the local population had already had a taste of air transport, and the climate, meteorological, and economic for airline progress seemed to be promising. As we just mentioned, uh, in the early 1920s, it had witnessed the beginnings of air transport in the United States, and small companies had emerged, mostly for only short periods, to demonstrate that the airplane could be used commercially to carry mail, saving time, especially on overwater routes where fast trains could not compete and occasionally passengers. But there was no incentive from official quarters, not least because flying machines were still viewed as novelties, and more important, they were dangerous. This latter aspect was emphasized all over the country by the barnstormer pilots who conducted aerial circuses with stunt flying as a major component of their exhibitions. The average spectator viewed the idea of flying much in the same way as he or she might have viewed the prospect of joining a trapeze act. 
But by the mid-1930s, attitudes changed. The politicians in Washington had dragged their feet in enacting legislation to govern flying activities. Senator James Wadsworth introduced a Department of Commerce bill in 1922, but this was shelved, and control of aviation generally was loose, uncoordinated, and it varied from state to state. Then on February 2nd, Groundhog's Day, I might include, 1925, under some pressure from the railways to terminate the United States Airmail Service, run by the post office, the the Contract Airmail Act was passed. It was known as the Kelly Act after Representative Clyde Kelly, its main sponsor. The bill provided for the transfer of all the post office mail routes to private operators who would bid competitively for the privilege. The first 12 routes were promptly awarded and all except one were in operation before the end of 1926. Now, simultaneously with the move towards the privatization of the airmail, the U.S. government, under the presidency of Calvin Coolidge, was taking steps to enact legislation to control the new transport system. The Secretary of Commerce, Herbert Hoover, appointed a joint committee or Committee of Civil Aviation, involving the American Engineering Council, taking note especially of dramatic progress being made all over Europe, and sporadically in other parts of the world. Although interrupted by the dramatics of Brigadier General Billy Mitchell, Coolidge appointed a special board headed by his friend Dwight Morrow. And the recommendations were formalized in Congress, and the president signed the Air Commerce Act on 20th of May, 1926. Shortly afterwards, on June 3rd, an amendment to the Kelly Act changed the system of payments from a percentage of the actual postage paid to a simple payment by by weight. Interestingly, all except one of the first 12 airmail contractors were connected in a mainly transcontinental route network, linking New York with San Francisco with branch lines on the Pacific Coast, the Northeast, and from Chicago. The exception was Florida Airways, which centered or ventured alone in the cradle of aviation, probably with ambitions to extend northwards, but which, as narrated uh, in the book, it came to naught. It didn't, didn't happen. And illustrating the difficulties of establishing an airline during the infant years of development of the industry. Now, let's talk a little bit about Florida Airways, as does uh, Mr. Davies in his book, Uh, Like many airmen who had seen squadron service in France in 1917 and 1918, Reed M. Chambers and the famous ace Eddie Rickenbacker 
were among those who realized the potential of the airplane for commercial purposes during peacetime. So immediately at the end of the business, of the hostilities rather, they had started other businesses, but the chance to start regular flying came with the passage of the Kelly Airmail Act in 1925. Together, Reed and Rickenbacker formed Florida Airways on November 3rd, 1925. Although Eddie was the better known of the two, Chambers had uh, more experience. He had taken over from Eddie as commander of the 94th Pursuit Squadron from World War I and continued to command the first pursuit group after the war ended. Among the personnel were another ace, Arthur Ray Brooks, Major William Robertson, who had also served in the war, and Lieutenant John Harding, an engineering officer of the Army Air Corps, round-the-world flight team of 1924. Other notable names were Vic Cheney, who later assumed a key role in the early development of Pan American Airways. Major William Mayo, chief engineer of the Ford Motor Company, and Lieutenant Carl Eagleson, an experienced Arctic flyer. As important as the skilled personnel wore the public who financed the Embryo Airline, the stock offering was 15,000 shares at $25. And among the investors were financial world notables Percy, Rockefeller, Charles Stone, Charles Hayden, Richard Hoyt, and Ann Morgan. In addition to 300000 in liquid assets, the Ford Motor Company came in with four of its all-metal Ford Stout 2AT transport airplanes. With such an impressive lineup, success should have been sure to follow. But in these precarious years of airline infancy, this was not, not always easy. They started off in great style with 5,000 spectators cheering the departure of the four aircraft from the Ford plant at Dearborn, near Detroit, on a chilly December 28, 1925 day. At Nashville, en route to Miami, another crowd turned out, including the mayor. Unfortunately, the first two AT aircraft to take off was caught in a crosswind and veered dangerously towards the mayor and his entourage. The pilot averted mass manslaughter only by steering the plane into the other three 2ATs, damaging one beyond repair. That airplane, Miss Fort Myers, was cannibalized to patch up the other three. On 11th of February, 1926, Florida Airways was awarded the CAM-10 airmail contract, which was Miami to Jacksonville via Fort Myers and Tampa. The problem was no airfields. Frenzied activity to fulfill the terms of the contract began, even using persons, 
personal labor to clear and level scrubland sites. At Jacksonville, the airfield could not cope with the 2AT. And so the inaugural service made April 1st was stipulated by the contract was flown by Travel Air and a diminutive Curtis Lark. Passenger service began on June 1st, 1926, and was extended beyond Jacksonville to Atlanta on September 15th. But Lady Luck frowned again. Three days later, a hurricane hit Miami, and another 2AT was demolished. Mail volume slackened, and the passenger business was not flourishing. Expenses continued to rise, and Florida Airways was forced to suspend operations on December 31st. Pride had gone before the fall. Chambers and Rickenbacker traveled to Havana to pursue ambitions to the south, but rival aspirant Juan Tripp had formed the Aviation Corporation of the Americas. With little bargaining power, what was left of Florida Airways was sold to Tripp's newly formed Pan American Airways. Well, that's our reading for today, and we hope you enjoyed the early history of the great airline, Eastern, Eastern Airlines. That's our show for today, and we hope you enjoyed this little bit of history. We'll bring you more in the weeks to come. Uh, You know, keeping our Eastern family informed is the greatest importance to the radio show. Uh, If you'll join us on Thursdays, every other Thursday, when we broadcast from the Eastern Files and uh, on alternating Thursdays, we do EAL Old Time Radio. That's a fun show, especially if you like old time music. And we're playing right now uh, music of the 50s, and I think our next show will be starting in the decade of the 60s, popular music of the 60s. So tune in, same time, 3.30 on Thursdays. Of course, our normal EAL radio show is on every Monday evening, and that is at 7 o'clock. Uh, This coming Monday, February 18th, we're doing a show of Eastern history set to music. I think you'll enjoy that. Great songs in the decades of Eastern Airlines. So if you have um, a story or memory you'd like to share with our Eastern family, we would certainly like to hear from you. The Eastern Radio Show would like to broadcast it during one of our shows. We can do it either you sharing your memory live. That's right. Just call in and tell your story. Or you can send it to us and we'll broadcast your story in the on the air. You can send your request to host at EALRadioShow.com. So for this Thursday episode... 67, we sign off as we do with each broadcast by saying goodbye for now, Eastern family. 
and thanks for listening. This is Neil Holland saying so long, Eastern family. We love you, Eastern.